Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm joined today by Joe Allen. Uh, Joe is an author and uh, the, a specialist in looking at all things to do with technology and the conflict between technology and humanity and the agenda, um, which is summed up in the word transhumanism. Uh, Joe has uh, written a, a, a very detailed and insightful and thoughtful book about this called Dark Aeon. Uh, subtitle is Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. Uh, Joe, welcome. Thank you very much, David. Very good to be here. I'd like to start with just a little bit of background about, uh, uh, about you and how you came to be writing in this particular topic area. The subject of transhumanism has been one on my mind for well over two decades, but until the technologies began to catch up with the dreams, it really seemed irrelevant. It seemed like a fantasy, and it still is a fantasy, and one hopes that it will remain a fantasy, at least for most of humankind. But the, the topic itself uh, really started to gain relevance, I would say, roughly in the teens, roughly uh, 10 to 12 years ago. 10 to 12 years ago, you had the discovery and then development of CRISPR technology. Uh, you had the sudden explosion in capabilities and in artificial intelligence, which really have come to fruition in the last few years. You also have had a real explosion in the viability of brain-computer interfaces. So as these technologies, which really sit at the core of the transhuman ideal, as they begin to catch up with the dreams, you're left with a question. You have these viable technologies that may or may not continue to progress, but most likely will. The question is, what do you do with them? Uh, transhumanists have a very specific idea of what to do with them. Uh, I, I fear that the rest of us don't. And if there is not a healthy suspicion of the downsides of these technologies, then what is done with these technologies will be done at our expense. We often want to start with definitions and try to be clear about what we're talking about. So from, from your book, Dark Eon, you, you quote uh, philosopher Max Moore, uh, who made transhumanism a household name, and he defined uh, the school of thought as follows. Uh, philosophies of life that seek the continuation and acceleration of the evolution of intelligent life beyond its currently human form and human limitations by means of science and technology guided by life-promoting principles and values. A very uh, clear definition. Um, if you were to define it, how, would, how else would you define transhumanism? You know, maybe go back to the original definition put forward by Julian Huxley. Um, Max Moore's definition was, he's refined it over the years, but we're talking about in the uh, early 90s into the 2000s. Julian Huxley writing in, it was actually a lecture delivered in, I believe, 1956 entitled Transhumanism. And that's really where the term got its, uh, its force. At the time, technology wasn't as much of a focus, so really what Julian Huxley was looking to do was to direct human evolution uh, using the scientific knowledge that was being gained and, of course, the techniques, uh, eugenic techniques in particular, to identify the superior genotypes and encourage those human beings to breed, and other elements too, including cultural engineering, cultural eugenics so that the superior, superior cultural modes were selected for. 
And so in Julian Huxley's definition, he simply says that it's now up to man to become the director in the greatest business of all, which is evolution, that human beings should be the directors of evolution, and that it was really up to us in order to transcend the limitations that currently hold us back some number of human beings would have to move forward. And in the end, we would become, in essence, a new species. So this idea is actually quite old, uh, and it, it really hinges on Darwinian evolution and the concept that Darwinian evolution has left us with a number of mutations and just simply restrictions on what our abilities are, uh, that the only way around them is to directly intervene. Techniques probably aren't going to cut it, according to this paradigm. So you need direct technological intervention. You need direct genetic engineering. Uh, you need things like artificial intelligence to enhance human cognition. And of course, in the end, what you need is a brain-computer interface in order to keep up with this advanced artificial intelligence. To bridge both worlds... What we're talking about, in essence, is at the core, scientific. You have the idea that science can solve all human problems and address the existential woes of humanity. And then rising up out of that, you have the concept that technology is the tool by which scientists, technicians, um, you know, medical professionals, that they will be able to directly intervene in human evolution and guide it. Again, this wouldn't be an issue were it not for the explosion in viable technologies, nor would it be an issue if it was just a fringe sect of intellectuals putting these ideas forward. But as I show in my book, Dark Eon, uh, there are th this idea has really bubbled up to some of the most powerful, really the most powerful corporations on Earth, uh, the most powerful militaries on Earth, including the U.S. military, and China's military, uh, among many others, and that as it moves forward into public consciousness, really what it has developed is a religion. It replaces traditional religion with technology as the highest power in the universe. Yes, and, and part of the irony of this, of scientism and the worship of science is 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 the mistakes that underpin so much of so much of their ideas. Um, later on, I hope to be looking at genetic entropy and evolution uh, to examine some of those. But what I'd like I'd like if you could to give a couple of examples of just the point you made it there at the end that it's not just a fringe sect that's looking at this. It's not um, a belief from the margins of society, but it's a belief system that is getting buy-in and traction and action from the best connected, the best funded, the most powerful parts of society. If you were to pick out one or two examples of that to illustrate the, uh, the degree to which these ideas have penetrated to the halls of power, what would you select? Uh, you know, they're so numerous, I don't think that one or two would do it, but uh, I'll rattle off a few. Maybe the most visible in recent years has been the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab's declaration of the Fourth Industrial Revolution was indeed a, a, a nod to, or in fact, a direct endorsement of transhumanism implicitly. 
the idea is that we're at the point in which we're the, the convergence of physical, digital, and biological technologies uh, will be merged. That what, what we're talking about is, it, it, he defines, Klaus Schwab defines the fourth industrial revolution as, in fact, the fusion of our digital, our physical, and biological identities. Uh, there are a number of other open transhumanists and implicit transhumanists who are often speaking at the World Economic Forum. Uh, many would recognize the name Yuval Noah Harari, although I would not say he is a transhumanist, but he certainly speaks for transhumanists. And then you have Kai-Fu Lee, you have Zoltan Istvan, you have uh, Hugo de Garris, all of whom I cover uh, in my book. And then come, you know, let me put something out there really quickly. This idea that the World Economic Forum is somehow responsible for this shift, I think, is, mis is, is uh, misguided. The results of all of these technological advancements in the Department of Defense in the U.S., also increasingly in China, uh, and also in Silicon Valley, that is what stimulated the World Economic Forum to pick this up. The World Economic Forum does not have data centers under their castles in Switzerland. They are mouthpieces. So the real import comes from the embrace of transhumanist philosophies uh, in the U.S. military, especially DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, their counterparts in China, in Israel, in India even, and certainly in the U.K., and then you also have uh, the U.S. Defense. Uh, uh, the U.S. Defense Department is mostly outsourcing, and they contract their high-tech projects. Uh, and so a lot of that is coming out of Silicon Valley and their counterparts in Seattle, Texas, so on and so forth. So Silicon Valley is really the core of this. And the two primary examples that I would give would be Mark Zuckerberg and his dream of a metaverse which of course flopped, but the metaverse itself didn't. Meta is not the metaverse. The metaverse is not meta. We can return to that concept if you'd like, but uh, another would be Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI. OpenAI, of course, is responsible for developing GPT, the generative pre-trained transformer, and GPT powers chat GPT. It's perhaps the most advanced large language model on earth. And Sam Altman is openly embracing a number of transhumanist ideas, the most important of which may be the idea of creating a superhuman intelligence, the superhuman intelligence that will ultimately do away with what is currently the primary human function in society, which is to work. Uh, Sam Altman, uh, like many others, believes that artificial intelligence will lead to uh, radical abundance by way of automation. Everything will be automated away. There will be a tiny elite that continue to actually do things, the rest of us will be on uh, universal basic income and, uh, I guess, slurping our smoothies as uh, the machine rolls on without us. And uh, then you have Elon Musk. Elon Musk is no longer in San Francisco, really, out except for Twitter, uh, mostly operating out of Texas. But Elon Musk, who is now really a hero to the right, Elon Musk, I would say, is probably the most open advocate for transhuman oriented technologies, everything from the creation of artificial general intelligence. He was, of course, at the founding of OpenAI and has now founded XAI to create what's known as artificial general intelligence. Just to imagine an actual 
AI, an actual machine that thinks like a human. And then, of course, his projects for uh, Optimus, the humanoid robot, his project Neuralink, the brain-computer interface, um, also really SpaceX. Uh, you know, people don't realize how intertwined transhumanism is with space exploration, with NASA uh, and other uh, independent contractors such as SpaceX. This is a, a you know. The idea is that Earth itself is a limitation and space is the ultimate frontier for the new humanity that will emerge from the current technological revolution. So there you have the NGO and perhaps, if not the most prestigious, one of the most prestigious, the World Economic Forum. Uh, you have military interests, the open declaration uh, that, that military supremacy hinges on artificial intelligence and the ability of human beings to merge their minds with it in some way or another, in addition to robots and all of this sort of thing, and genetic engineering. Then, of course, you have the Silicon Valley uh, core of a lot of these technological ideas and ideals. So it goes from the corporate sector to the non-governmental uh, sector to the, the military itself. Uh, that's just really a slice of the examples I could give that especially have cropped up in the last few years, which show undoubtedly that uh, everyone from, say, the Royal Society in London uh, to Rand Corporation in the U.S. Uh, to uh, companies like uh, OpenAI, that they are the, the, the predominant theme is a transhuman one, one in which humanity as we exist now will no longer exist in the future, at least will not be the dominant species and the, the new species, uh, or at least the new race, uh, will be uh, technologically augmented human beings. That will, th that will be the model to inherit the Earth. Ken, thank you very much for that. That, that was a fascinating summary. Um, the, uh, your mention of space exploration obviously takes us to uh, the, the, the previous science fiction uh, versions of this um, and Frederick uh, Pohl's uh, novel Man Plus, which was all about a modified human so he could live on Mars, is an example of, uh, of, of the fictional becoming now the ambition of, um, uh, of, of uh, technological innovators. So you, you, you've made the point very powerfully there that the wish, the desire, the philosophic commitment to all of this has penetrated far into our societies. Um, I wonder if you could say where you think the technology is. And I'll give you a couple of options, and maybe if you can say if it's one of these or neither. Option one, uh, the technology is overhyped, it's less effective than it's advertised, and it's not actually capable of being genuinely intelligent, and therefore it will fail in its ambition. Um, it might do us a lot of harm along the way, but it's not the magnitude of threat that some are saying, option one. Or the technology is effective, uh, it is the magnitude of threat, and it, it does pose the, a, a genuine and existential and immediate threat to uh, the continuation of, uh, of mankind. Where do you fall in those two definitions? I don't really pretend to know what the future holds. I would have 10 years ago been very, very cautious about any declaration that these technologies would be much of anything, to be honest. 
Uh, it, it's really only been the last 10 or so years that the technologies have improved to the point that anything like a transhumanist fantasy was plausible. I, I'll say this, though. Uh, unless you think that these technologies will stop as they are, like where they are now, we've hit the cap, we've hit the wall, uh, then you can expect that they'll continue to advance. And so to the question of are they overhyped? Yes. Yes, they are overhyped. Absolutely. Every corporation hypes its product. Every military hypes its prowess um, to the degree that uh, any organization such as that is doing, you know, following the norm. Of course, it's overhyped. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not effective, though. So, for instance, you had uh, Blake Lemoyne, the so-called Google whistleblower who came forward saying that Google's large language model, their chatbot, Lambda, uh, was sentient, is sentient. And that made a big splash last year. LeMoyne was interviewed by everybody, including Tucker Carlson, on this. Now, the idea of whether the machine is sentient or not, I, I don't think that that could even be answered in any meaningful way. Uh, it really is a leap of faith whether you believe anything is conscious, whether you even believe that the human being next to you is conscious, there's only a number of triggers that let you know that that entity next to you is like you, is feeling things like you do. So for a computer system, that can be very easy to dismiss, especially when it's clunky. As it becomes more sophisticated, though, as you have a large language model that can answer in ways that are, in fact, unique, that are, in fact, original, that are, in fact, seemingly heartfelt, that leap of faith becomes much easier to believe that it's conscious. And so uh, the, the, that would have been a really good example of hype that centers on a mystery, but also centers on uh, a technology that is, in fact, profoundly effective. People point to how dumb GPT can be or how artless GPT can be. Uh, all of that's true. A child is oftentimes very dumb. A child is oftentimes very artless. Uh, that's the metaphor or analogy that a lot of transhumanists view these technologies through. This is an embryonic phase. This is the phase in which the machine is simply being tweaked. It's learning, so to speak. And GPT-5 will be a dramatic improvement, just as undoubtedly GPT-4 was against GPT-3. And so here's um, to, to sum this up. I know this Sounds like I'm trying to wiggle out from underneath the question, uh, but the question is ultimately unanswerable. All you can do is make uh, some sort of blind prediction. The one thing that I'm absolutely certain of is that so many people in these corporations or adjacent to these corporations uh, or just simply who uh, in the public who believe in these declarations, what we are seeing is a religious revolution not unlike what was seen in the uh, 1800s with the rise of scientism. Uh, people like Auguste Comte, people, uh, you know, eventually Karl Marx, uh, people who believed that the new religious system would simply replace traditional religion with science. And you have, even today now, the lingering effects of that. I wouldn't say that communism is a potent force in any pure form, but it still exists as an alternative to religion. Scientism, on the other hand, is incredibly potent. We saw that during the pandemic. You can see it in every avenue of life. The belief that science describes the fundamental reality. That used to be the purview of 
traditional religion. It is now science. What transhumanism is, and I, I use that term broadly, it could, de- it could describe many other uh, entities, organizations, uh, individuals who don't necessarily run, you know, walk under the banner of transhumanism, but the general idea is intact. Transhumanism simply, as I said earlier, extends scientism to technology. As that belief system becomes encroached, not only in the public, but also among these various organizations, be they military, non-government organizations, uh, or uh, the, the, the corporations running out of Silicon Valley, C- Seattle, uh, by, uh, you know, uh, Shenzhen, places like this, that belief system enough is, 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 is potent enough to drive forward dramatic sociological and psychological changes in society. You see it already happening. What we're seeing really is uh, these are the prophecies of a techno-religion, many of which are believed by elites, believed by many people. That alone is enough to cause, to really wreak havoc, in my opinion, in my assessment. To add the element that you asked about earlier, though, the technology itself, uh, as the technology stands right now, it's already incredibly potent. Smartphones are profound technologies. Smartphones are fully immersive. They're easily, they're very addictive. Um, They are just superb conduits for surveillance and for the dissemination of propaganda. It's been amazing to watch. The pandemic was really, it was like a fireworks show uh, that, that, of, of propaganda and uh, mass psychosis. So uh, that sort of thing is not a, a one-off, I don't believe. I, I, who knows what the next crisis will be? There will be plenty more, you can be sure. The infrastructure is already there for mass psychosis. The AI is already good enough to rake you over from top to bottom, create a very detailed dossier of your your habits, of your desires, of your political beliefs, so on and so forth, your location, your spending, all of that. That is easily ascertained. It has been for well over a decade. The programs have been in place for three decades. So you already have a major problem with the uh, uh, technologies as they exist now, be they the AI used to rake over data from mass surveillance, and organize it, or the, the AIs used to disseminate propaganda. The real import of large, large language models in this realm is that you now have a device that can create relationships with human beings, personal relationships. This goes all the way down to education, and that will be extremely important going forward. Human beings are going to develop, they already are, they are developing human-machine relationships that uh, in, some di- in some instances, the machine is in fact more important than other human beings in the person's life. Uh, so we're already there. Looking forward into the future, I can only imagine these technologies will become even more sophisticated. Uh, you know, the list is very, very long. And even if they don't work out exactly according to the hype, a- a- again, it doesn't matter. Communism didn't equalize the economy. Communism didn't do away with the elite and flatten everyone into an egalitarian social structure. And yet communism had a tremendous impact on the history of the West, on the history of China and Asia in general, uh, Cambodia, 
uh, so on and so forth, Vietnam, and then, of course, in South America. That, I think, is just as important. The notion that these ideas are moving forward cultural revolutions, and they do indeed have viable technologies behind them. How viable? Who knows? And, and the whole concept of, of, of existential risk, uh, it, 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 the, the logic that leads to the concept that AI will continue to develop, will develop its own goals, and could potentially wipe out human beings, uh, constrained by its own premises, that logic is actually quite sound. But it doesn't mean that, that it's necessarily describing reality. A number of logical scenarios uh, can be constructed that are not real. Uh, at the same time, that logic is driving, in many ways, the regulatory capture we see from big tech towards the U.S. government and also the EU. This, this boogeyman of killer AI is used as justification for regulation of the AI industry, but that regulation is being done at the behest of big tech, of companies like Google, OpenAI, Microsoft, Facebook, and so forth. And so what you're seeing there is the public-private partnership so aptly identified by our friend Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, that model seems to be the, the model that will prevail going forward, that these technologies will not only have the uh, will not only be primarily in the hands of tech oligarchs, but will also have the complicity of uh, the U.S. government, and it will look more and more like what you have in China, where you have the, the tech sector and the Chinese Communist Party are basically one, and nothing happens in the tech sector that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't sign off on, and nothing happens in the tech sector in which the government doesn't benefit. I'd like to, uh, the second half of, of this interview, I, I'd like to get into some of the, the sort of philosophical underpinnings as how we got here. But before we do, and as a kind of a pivot point, um, you mentioned the pandemic and the response to the pandemic and the fear and the huge propaganda and the changes that, that it managed to make to our society. So uh, is, is this a potential tipping point? Is it pandemic as initiation right? I think you say in your book is, is, a, is a potential to what this actually is. Is it going to be the point we have before pandemic and we have after pandemic and after pandemic is 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 uh, characterised by uh, the transhumanist agenda being much more to the fore, much more active, um, and much um, having a much more direct influence on our lives. And before the pandemic, it was not so, and the pandemic itself is some sort of transition. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. And it, it, the thing is, is that what the pandemic also did is it kicked up a massive backlash, thank God, and, uh, you know, the concept of transhumanism was not really in the air as it is now, especially among those who are skeptical of the agendas put forward by the World Economic Forum or the Bilderbergers uh, or the Bilderberg, sorry, and uh, or the, um, you know, just uh, the big tech in general, the, the, the biomedical establishment. There's now an awareness among dissidents that this concept, this, this desire to fuse human beings to technology to create this, this tight, bound relationship between human beings and technology, uh, that has become very much, the, it, it's come to the forefront of consciousness among many dissidents. And so uh, I, I think that that also opens the window for opportunity uh, for uh, just general resistance to any sort of paradigm that embraces that. 
that being said, we see in the aftermath of the pandemic, despite all of the, the people who were disillusioned by the system, many became much more tightly coupled to that system. And that system, uh, the, the, the entirety of the system from finance on down to the biomedical sector, the, tech, the, the big tech sector and the military, as intertwined as they are, very separate, but uh, all of them were very emboldened during the pandemic to flex their power. And many have conceived of this as a test run for future operations, uh, assuming that everything is not all quiet going forward. It undoubtedly served as a test run. In fact, was openly described as such uh, by many, including Schwab's Great Reset or the admission of uh, the military in Canada that the, the rollout of the, the pandemic response was, in fact, a kind of practice for other uh, cri- you know, crisis responses. And then, you know, on a different sort of level, but uh, the war with Ukraine and Russia, you have Palantir, the, the AI company developed after 9-11 uh, by Peter Thiel and others, uh, which is maybe the most advanced surveillance and military AI on the planet. And they conceive of the Ukraine-Russia war as a testing ground for further militarization of AI or maybe the further digitization of the military. So uh, you see with the pandemic, you had the rollout of this, this concept of the science, right? And you, re- you really did function in many ways like a tent revival for scientism in which people suddenly found their ground of being in this scientific movement and they found their salvation through a technology, an experimental technology, the mRNA vaccine. Not long after all of that went away, uh, for the most part, you had the sudden public consciousness around AI. As I said earlier, a lot of that is hype, but it also hinges on the viable technologies such as AlphaFold at DeepMind, which predicts protein folding, is able to model uh, the effects of mutations. You have uh, the, the widespread use of military technology in order to surveil populations. Uh, that has now been entrenched. A lot of that has been tested by way of the pandemic. Uh, and of course, you have uh, the, the sudden explosion of large language models, GPT, BARD or Lambda at Google, uh, Llama at uh, Meta, so on and so forth, so many. Um, that I don't see it as some sort of plot. I don't think they necessarily have the script hidden away in a tomb, uh, in, a, in a case. But I do believe that as it's unfolding, that these tech corporations and the various entities uh, adjacent to them, uh, they are, in fact, emboldened to make direct interventions in human evolution. They're doing so in many ways openly. And the reception... That pandemic, the technologies forward to the front of elite consciousness, Schwab's fourth industrial revolution, and catalyzed by what he called the Great Reset. Uh, even if it's not neat and tidy, undoubtedly we are in the midst of an accelerating cultural and technological revolution. In my book, I describe it as a techno-religion. I am not the first to do so. Simply fleshing out a concept that was laid down 
many, many, many decades ago, really. Um, but in the book, my, my, my goal is to try to balance both the, the concept of a religious revolution with the viable technologies themselves and how those technologies fit into that re- revolution. And this is, of course, why the continuing pushback against the lies that were told during COVID is so very important, because what was the basic message? It was in Fauci we trust, uh, in the expert we trust. Um, in uh, Britain had a very strange equivalent called Chris Whitty, in Whitty we trust. And uh, this is the more that their narrative can be shown to be deceptive, um, completely based on falsehoods and guesswork or outright lies, uh, the the safer I think will be against people being fooled in a similar way a second time. We've probably come to the end of part one uh, of this because I know you need to go and and, and uh, cover another commitment. Um, it's been it's been lovely talking to you so far, uh, Joe. Uh, until we can meet again very shortly, thank you very much. And welcome back for part two, and delayed by many things, but uh, happening nonetheless, of a discussion with Joe Allen uh, all about his book, Dark Aeon, and um, all of the uh, issues surrounding transhumanism and the war against humanity. Uh, we, we covered a lot of the mechanics of, of, of this, where the technology has arrived at. And I wanted, I wanted to uh, uh, go into the background, Joe, which you, which you do uh, very extensively in your book. Um, and if we could start with the whole issue of, of eugenics and, and uh, Galton and, and before him his relative Darwin, and the, the, their ideology. How much of that thinking and that strand of thinking is is underpinning the transhumanist movement? Well, David, that's the foundation of the transhumanist movement. The idea of transhumanism, of course, the the directed evolution of Homo sapiens, and the ultimate goal being to create a new sort of species that transcends Homo sapiens. So uh, the the basis in Darwin and uh, really his cousin Francis Galton is uh, undeniable. The the real critical link would be Julian Huxley, who uh, although he's not the first to use transhumanism, he is the one who put the stamp on transhumanism in a 1956 lecture, then a printed essay entitled Transhumanism. The idea being that human beings, as we gain more and more scientific knowledge, especially about ourselves, uh, our bodies, our brains, our culture, the idea that he put forward is that man will become the director of the greatest business of all, his own evolution. And his idea was that science and social engineering and implicitly, given his uh, strong advocacy of eugenics, the the, um, the the biological alteration of the human germline, it really stayed, though, primarily in the realm of science and technique until a few decades later, although many different cultural threads that are obviously transhumanist but did not go under that title or umbrella 
pre-existed all of this. So uh, just to, to put it in a really uh, clear terms, what you have, as far as I can see, is the uh, the rapid expansion of scientific or scientistic culture, the, the notion that science can solve all human problems, including uh, relieving us of our existential woes, and also concurrently the development of technologies that increasingly changed the way that human beings behaved, the way in which they perceived reality. The, the social structure itself, and then eventually the, the deep psychology of each human being in uh, the societies of the developed world. As all of this wells up, there's the question, what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do with these technologies? As transhumanism really developed, especially as it got its real legs in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, transhumanism became um, a, a, it pretty much provided a clear answer to what to do with all of these technologies, especially with the promise of artificial intelligence just over the horizon, genetic engineering, and neurological manipulation, include, and also robotics. The, the, the question of what to do with these technologies is answered by transhumanists very, very succinctly. You accelerate. You adopt. Uh, you use these radical technologies to radically alter the human being. And I would say that everything we've seen in the Silicon Valley ethos of uh, move fast and break things is directly in line. It moves in some ways in parallel to transhumanism, although for many in Silicon Valley, there is a direct cultural lineage with transhumanism. And it would not be a problem for me if it were still a fringe ideology among fringe technologists. But uh, as I believe I explained um, some, some, many moons ago uh, in our previous interview, what we see now are the most powerful corporations on Earth. Uh, many of the laboratories and scientists in the most powerful militaries on Earth and uh, more and more so in academia and in the popular culture, this notion of radical technology, of widespread and rapid adoption, and full-bore accelerationism, it has taken hold. It has become a cultural zeitgeist. And if this is applicable to the individual, um, individual evolution, individual transformation, individual development, that you also outline the collectivist version of this and the collectivist role, uh, specifically with, with the role of government. You say here in uh, Dark Aeon, as non-Zion looks out on a modern landscape where big gods are receding in the face of scientism and atheism, he finds inspiration where, quote, secular societies climbed the ladder of religion then kicked it away. And you quote him saying, there's growing evidence showing that both in society and also in people's minds, gods and governments occupy a similar niche. First, gods and governments both have surveillance capabilities that facilitate large-scale cooperation and trust. Second, they, they can both provide uh, comfort in the face of adversity and suffering. Third, they both offer uh, external sources of control and stability when a personal sense of control is under threat. So... 
this idea of the government as God, the government replacing God, um, and the idea that 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 government is because it's godlike um, has a wisdom beyond that of the individual and can direct the individual and 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 wisely point him in the way his feet should travel. Um, you, you, I, how to what extent do you see this as one of the the drivers of this movement? I think it's a central drive. Uh, you know, many transhumanists, as I, as I document extensively, many transhumanists see their quests in terms of religion, in terms of spirituality. Uh, most, not all, but most are atheists. And so in their conception of things, they are creating the technologies that will become God. Uh, a, a really great example, uh, Elon Musk called out Larry Page, uh, co-founder of Google, for his desire to create a digital god in the data centers at Google. The idea would be to create an artificial general intelligence, a being that is superhuman in every capacity and is yet human-like in its ability to move across different cognitive domains. Uh, this desire to create a digital god, by the way, is certainly not isolated uh, to Larry Page at Google. Uh, there are a number of others at Google that I could point to, which I point to in the book, that uh, also share this vision. Uh, one of the more prominent public figures now is Mo Gaudat, the former uh, executive business officer for, uh, for Google, or chief business officer for Google. And uh, uh, Mo Gaudat uh, famously uh, said that as he watched the AIs and robo robotics systems at Google developed, develop, he saw it as God as a child, that this is the, the first fumbling behaviors of a being that would eventually become superhuman. And in a godless universe, that, of course, would mean it becomes a God, if not the God, the most powerful intelligence on the planet. This notion is also shared by Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil is maybe the most famous anchor point philosophically for the transhumanist movement. Uh, Ray Kurzweil was hired in, in 2012 as a top R&D director at Google, primarily in natural language processing. And of course, Ray Kurzweil is the one who put the concept of the singularity on the map, the idea that these technologies following Moore's law of exponential advancement, that these technologies, artificial intelligence and robotics, nanotechnology and genetic engineering are hurtling towards a point of convergence in which human beings will uh, inexorably uh, merge with machines that uh, the, distinguish, the distinguishing boundary between virtual and actual reality would dissolve, uh, that you know, the singularity comes from the same sort of mathematical concept that a singularity in a black hole comes from. So the idea is that you will approach a point at which the machines become so powerful, you can't predict them, you can't control them, uh, we will be at the mercy of the machines. Kurzweil is very hopeful on this, uh, but uh, just to, to continue on this, this notion, that again, in a godless universe, what you were talking about is creating a god. Uh, but to, to just show the, the profound influence, um, on uh, September 18th, uh, September 18th, Elon Musk met with Bibi Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister of Israel, 
and also Greg Brockman, president of OpenAI, and also Max Tegmark, author of the book Life 3.0, of MIT physicist, transhumanist, and also co-founder of the Future of Life Institute. These are, we have the wealthiest man on earth, one of the most powerful political leaders on earth, and the president of what is undoubtedly, at the moment, uh, the most powerful artificial intelligence company on earth, OpenAI. And Greg Brockman uh, says that he believes that Ray Kurzweil's vision of the future is probably the most accurate. Uh, he oddly says that people perceive Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, as being a religious book, but it's in actuality a highly analy analytical book. I would say it is both. Even the title itself, uh, The Singularity is Near, is a play off of the statement of John the Baptist in, in the gospel, uh, The Kingdom of Heaven is near, then the entirety of the book is to basically position technology in all the places that religion once occupied, traditional religion. And so you hear Greg Brockman say this, and then most interestingly, you hear Elon Musk assent to it. He, uh, just a year and a half ago, uh, uh, told Business Insider he believed that the singularity is in fact imminent, but it will be a much slower process, not an exponential increase. Um, with the rapid advances in uh, artificial intelligence and, of course, his uh, uh, penchant for salesmanship and bullshitting, um, he has suddenly changed positions. And now he also assents in public, uh, in the presence of one of the most powerful political leaders on earth, that in fact, the singularity is near. This is a religious prophecy about the future of humanity. Uh, and it is a totalizing prophecy. And so uh, it's um, when I when I say that transhumanism is a techno religion, I'm certainly not alone in that. I'm certainly not the first, uh, but I do document extensively all of these different religious trail, these religious cultural threads leading up to the inversion of traditional spiritual conceptions and the elevation of technology as the highest power. In the political realm, um, we are seeing the emergence of a new religion, it broadly called cultural Marxism or uh, postmodernism. It, has, it covers many, it carries many different names and labels, um, but it is this re-emergence of, um, of, a, of a new form of Marxism where uh, the victim is everything and where there is a desire and an ambition to to destroy everything that uh, Western civilization represents. And this manifests with um, it's the various forms of critical theory. And these are to, um, to drag down and destroy uh, the, the established order so that something new can arise. Um, and the, the new thing, ultimately, um, has no standards, has no guiding principle. So it becomes it becomes Crowley's do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It becomes um, ultimate permissiveness. And you see this most starkly in, the, in queer theory and everything that goes with it. And this has been rolled into schools and this has been formed, and this is forming part of an indoctrination along with critical race theory into schools. And we're seeing an attack on the minds of the young from, from this direction. But the underlying belief that drives it is essentially a religious one.
religious in nature, not religious in the conventional sense. Now, you, you explore this further. So you, you start off um, one of the chapters in, in, in the Dark Eon uh, with a quote from Max, Max Moore, and, uh, which, which reads as follows. He said, Lucifer means light bringer, and this should be a clue, uh, and sorry, this should clue us in to his symbolic importance. Lucifer is the embodiment of reason, of intelligence, of critical thought. He stands against the dogma of God and all other dogmas. He stands for the exploration of new ideas and new perspectives in the pursuit of truth. Um, and you then start off your analysis of this with the phrase transhumanism is Satanism with a with a brain chip. Okay. So um, this idea that that the I, this idea that the, that the principles of Satanism and, and paganism and, and and religious ideologies like this are 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 um, also at the core of transhumanism is very interesting because we're seeing them at the core of so much that's affecting humanity on a cultural level and if they're also affecting the application of technology and the direction of technology um, steering it in a particular direction that's that's a, a I guess a multi-directional attack uh, could you expand a little bit on on the nature of this influence? So, uh, to be clear, uh, each chapter, I, I, I try to capture a different flavor of the movement uh, to approach this from a, a different angle. So, uh, that it fits neatly, uh, you know, the, this, the, the part of the book you're talking about, the second part, I entitled it The Pentagram of Power, kind of play on Lewis Mumford's classic tome, uh, The Pentagon of Power. And the, the, really, the, the, the driving concept is the sort of infernal, satanic elements that have been woven into the transhumanist and overall techno-fetishist movement. Uh, I, you know, as, as you've read, I, I rely a lot on their own quotations to, to, uh, to convey that flavor so that it's not just simply me calling it something, but in fact, channeling where they're coming from. Uh, in, the, in this case, though, you know, I've heard many times that uh, all of our world leaders or some cabal of world leaders are all Luciferians. Uh, certainly, there is uh, ample evidence of occultism among our elite, just as there is ample evidence of occultism in the middle class, just as there is ample evidence of occultism in the redneck hollers, even of East Tennessee. So I don't want to make it out to be some sort of grand conspiracy. And in the case of the transhumanist, by and large, not all, but by and large, they employ the image of Satan or the image of Lucifer as uh, what they see as just merely symbolic of the human propensity to acquire and deploy power and technology's ability to realize that power. And so Satan becomes a symbol of man rising up by man's own power and will uh, by way of technology to take control of flawed nature. Uh, there are exceptions to this. I think a, a great classic exception would be the direct cultural lineage from Aleister Crowley through Timothy Leary uh, into the broader tech culture, which continues on today with such things as uh, you may have read the article 
in the New York Times by Ezra Klein, whom I generally detest, but in this article, I think he was very honest. Um, he talked about all of his contacts in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and how many of these programmers and uh, uh, VCs conceive of artificial intelligence as summoning demons. And many are, of course, inspired by occultism, but by and large, with some exceptions, by and large, they are materialists. And what they see uh, in, in occultism or Satanism is uh, a really a feeble grasping for the powers beyond what is human. And although they would give credit where credit's due to, say, the Renaissance alchemists and so on and so forth for creating the conceptual space necessary to become later on computer programming, they by and large see uh, technology and computer programming as the realization of powers that never existed before. The realization of pagan gods that were only imagined but will be brought into actual existence through technology. Another great example would be Mark Pesci, who is responsible for uh, virtual reality markup language. He was an early programmer in virtual reality. And Mark Pesci is, in fact, um, uh, much more on the sort of supernaturalist, occultist bent. Uh, but uh, Pesci believed that he was bringing into actual material realization the, the dreams of the pagan wizards and witches uh, by way of virtual reality. And uh, you can see these themes running all through it. Now, if you believe in the supernatural, if you believe in that beyond the physical, then you understand that even whatever their conception of these symbols may be, uh, they are, in fact, tapping into something supernatural, into something that is beyond the human. Uh, but, I, you know, the thing that really bothers me about all of this, again, is one thing if you have a cult who dresses in funny outfits and does funny rituals, but you can't necessarily perceive any sort of material difference in the world unless you are very sensitive to it. With this, what we're talking about is a culture that is bringing into existence technologies that scour over our communications, that create detailed dossiers on uh, millions or billions of individuals that manipulate people en masse through algorithmic selection uh, that are, in fact, utilizing technologies for genetic engineering from microbes on up to mammals, including human beings. And of course, that are developing artificial intelligence systems that more and more do reflect human intelligence and more and more do channel actual personalities to flood the public space. So um, whether or not you believe that the wizards under uh, Pharaoh Ramses were actually throwing down their staves to become serpents or not, these guys have staves, they are throwing them down, they are serpents, and I'm not seeing at the moment a Moses to send down his staff to eat them. Well, on the subject, on the subject of serpents, the first lie was, of course, you shall not surely die. The lie told by the serpent in the garden. Um, and, and this takes us on to the desire for immortality. And, and there seems to be... Um, a sales pitch being offered to humanity here. 
that if you just accept all of this, yes, it's got its downsides. Yes, it's a bit you know strange in some areas. But hey, we have the option that you shall not surely die because you will become immortal. You will become like God. You will, you will live on. This seems to be what's being offered and sold and, and held out as, as, the, as the promise of some eventual redemption. Um, and, um, and some people at least are falling for it. But it certainly is, is giving a gloss of, of some sort of positive message to, to the whole movement. Um, to, to what extent do you think that's playing out? Do you think that that message is, 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 is being successful in moving the public mood and disarming the public to some extent uh, to some of the, the, the more obvious negative consequences of all of the surveillance and the manipulation of um, humanity that, 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 that could be involved in transhumanism? Uh, this is a, an extremely potent uh, idea, and it, it does sit also at the center of the movement. There are some transhumanists who reject the notion of immortality. Most are uh, completely fixated on it. Even those that you hear right now in the public square most loudly condemning the acceleration of certain AI technologies, uh, artificial general intelligence. A good example of that would be Eliezer Yudkowsky. Uh, who was uh, who founded the Singularity Institute, now known as the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. And Yudkowsky has made the most forceful arguments against creating artificial general intelligence without enough safety measures in place to keep it from killing everybody. Not because he doesn't want to see it developed, but because he wants the technology to be safe enough to make at least enough people immortal and therefore be worth it. Uh, by and large, the conversation around this is uh, centered on transhumanists who are arguing over how fast we get to the singularity. Uh, let me give you two examples of how widespread this notion of Im immortality has become. Uh, Jared Kushner, in an interview last year, we covered this on The War Room, uh, famously uh, declared that he is hopeful that with the advances in science and technology that he will either be the uh, among in the first generation to live forever or in the last generation to die. Uh, Jared Kushner is hardly an uninfluential or unconnected individual. Uh, for him to make that declaration, I think, is extremely important. Uh, it shows that it's all it's not only uh, he's one of many, many, many data points, uh, many, many individuals who are extremely wealthy who follow these sort of immortality ink startups uh, in the hopes that they will be able to either a uh, alter the human genome so that uh, humans no longer age and death becomes a choice uh, or b to actually be able to transfer the contents of the consciousness over into a, a computer and upload the soul uh, I'll give you another example of how uh, prevalent this idea is. In that discussion I'd mentioned earlier between Netanyahu, Musk, and Greg Brockman, and so forth, uh, Netanyahu asked, well, what happens when we die? What, what, what does all of this mean in terms of human death? 
And Greg Brockman came back. I think death will be a choice. This, of course, comes out of Kurzweil and many other transhumanists. The idea that we will just have to choose to die if we do or not. And Musk, uh, who, again, has by and large kept his hand close, said, I think that that's probably the case, too. Uh, another great example would be Brian Johnson, uh, who was the founder of Braintree, a, pay- a payment program. He's taken all of his many millions and has poured it into his quest for immortality. And Brian Johnson has become a real phenomenon in the public eye right now. Like uh, I've covered him in the past, but uh, I've not really covered a lot of his recent stuff. I've followed it. And what Brian Johnson is doing, uh, he uh, basically he he has created a regime of self surveillance of every aspect of his body, and he has uh, undergone such things as parabiosis, a vampiric process in which his son donates blood and he injects the pla- or the, uh, the the blood cells. I believe is the power and. Um, so on and so forth, uh, you know, uh, mountains of vitamins, all of these bizarre uh, sorts of practices in order to uh, to reverse aging and keep him alive. He at least says he believes forever. What's most important, maybe aside from the vast uh, interest that he has generated in this sort of thing, in the in re- you know, Time Magazine covered him, Rolling Stone covered him. Um, he's got a huge Twitter following now is his open blasphemy. So, you know, one of his tweets, and I'm paraphrasing, was uh, Jesus, you know, everything Jesus promised you, I am going to deliver, something to that effect. Uh, He does these goofy videos such as, um, you know, pretending to walk on water in his personal swimming pool. Uh, He's oftentimes making these sorts of blasphemous statements. So uh, all in all, this is to say that they are, uh, whether they are atheists or in fact aware of what they're tapping into, there is this this, uh, very strong tendency. Uh, You heard it there in Max Moore. He wrote that in 1989, uh, holding up Lucifer as the symbol for man's quest to overcome nature and invented gods. Uh, this, This entire culture, I think, does indeed revel in that blasphemy. And they are self-consciously creating technological simulacra of what traditional religion directed us towards, which is, of course, God and all of the uh, hierarchies below. I'd like to close with um, uh, the pushback, the resistance. How how do we resist this this movement? Now, in the appendix to your book, you have got a fifty four a fifty five point plan to stay human. So there's plenty to do. Um, I'll just well, it's I'll a, just, a, it, just to be clear that that's kind of a joking play on all the people whenever they give a presentation and they're like, oh, at the end of it, it's like this is my twenty-five point plan to save America. Uh, so it is a bit tongue in cheek, although there's plenty of items on the list. So yeah, I'll quote just a little bit from the start of this. You talk about personal choice. So this is you, you're talking about resistance, and this is what you say: um, cultivate silence in your home. Cultivate quality time with your family and friends. Raise healthy children. Teach them so well you trust them with your life. Care for your elders. Do not automate your duties to child, spouse or elder. Cultivate face-to-face relationships with your co-workers and colleagues. Participate in the communal life of your city, whether it's civic, religious or pure entertainment. 
kill your TV, keep any digital devices in a drawer or cabinet as if they were feral beasts, keep all electronics in the periphery of your living space. The only exception to this, the fine analog stereo. Whenever possible, light candles, support print culture, buy paper books, read them out loud, oh, sorry, read them outside, uh, buy local, use cash, avoid online shopping. Uh, don't get a chip implanted in your in your hand or your brain. And that was a bit tongue in cheek. That one. Buy a flip phone. Do not do not use a smartphone unless you absolutely have to. Its absence will clear your mind and soothe your soul. If you can get away with it, uh, use a landline. Um, so you're talking about returning to the authentic in all of these. Returning to the human. Returning to the personal and away from the abstract, and away from the digital, and away from the fake, essentially, if I can summarise it. Um, could, could you expand a wee bit more on, on how you see resistance working? Uh, one of the real problems we face is that technology does, in fact, confer a degree of earthly power. Uh, even if you are subject to the power, uh, your, your ascent to an earthly power means that you're not going to have a whole lot of hassles by the power. The reality is that the expansion of digital currency, the expansion of digital life, this being an example of it, right, imprinting your personality onto the digital, uh, the reliance on the digital to be relevant in the culture, that is almost absolute at this point, um, the expansion of digital identification so on and so forth, all of the norms of society in any developed country and in most developing culture, countries center on the digital in order to be relevant. Uh, this is billed as uh, progress and certainly in, in, insofar as creating and deploying technologies that are very, very good at tracking and controlling people, it certainly is progress. I reject entirely the notion that that progress is in fact of higher quality than what we we had before, although the metrics certainly show uh, longer, you know, longer lifespans and uh, oftentimes higher GDP. I think that the sacrifice is far beyond the gain. So, um, the, the, in that case, if you want to preserve everything we've been handed, if you want to pick a spot anywhere before this so-called progress began to be imposed upon us and try to, as best you can, redirect the culture from there. I don't care where you pick it. In fact, if you reject my my uh, very idiosyncratic demands entirely, I really don't care. That's you know that's fine. Uh, but I think that people who are aware that the purpose of the book is to show you these people have a clear vision of the future. There are many different paths that they project, right? So I say a clear, they have many clear visions of the future. And they also have technologies at their disposal that they can realize some approximation of that future. While we are concerned about the next election, while we are concerned about the next mortgage payment, they are planning a long-term future. The only thing that I ask of the reader by the end, although of course I do provide my own idiosyncratic eugenicized cultural genome, as I put it, um, I, I, I do think that most people, if they understood the stakes, would in fact reject that progress out and out, at least in uh, most of it, and um, are 
hopefully willing to take the hits that are going to be required. So, yeah, I, I think that resistance to this is going to be very idiosyncratic. It's going to be very different in the UK than it is in the US. It'll be very, very different in South America or Africa to the extent that such resistance exists there. Uh, so going forward, I think that the, the real principle has to be this knowledge that the radical alteration of the human is not going to be in your court. You may have options on a menu, but that menu was created for you. And the desire to choose off of that menu was in fact given to you. You didn't cook it up. Um, Once you have realized that, um, you realize that most things in life are like that, but that the, 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 path of cultural transmission from your ancestors, from your wider cultural tradition, that that offers something qualitatively and and fundamentally different than this futurist vision. Uh, If the futurist vision works out exactly as any one of them plans, you're talking about hell on earth, a hyper-controlled, totalizing singularity with an AI god. If it doesn't work out at all like they planned, but it was implemented anyway, then you're talking about sitting aboard a cultural Titanic as it smashes into an iceberg and sinks. So, that's my David. That is uh, as, uh, as 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 short as I can make it. I believe in the powers that traditional religion has directed our souls towards. But even for those who do not adhere to that, I think that there is a strong argument to be made that what we have received by way of nature is worth preserving and not radically transforming, whether those transformations are 100% successful or not. I think that going forward in this global civilizational transformation, there have to be control groups. This is an experiment. We are the lab rats. Make your way into the control group Petri dish and fight off any test tube that approaches. That is my suggestion. And I, but it's, uh, it is, in fact, only a suggestion. I, I'm, I'm, I'm no cult leader. If I was, then uh, you would see me in finer clothes and better digs and you'd have like 10 girls behind me. Um, and uh, once you see that, you'll know that I started charging. Uh, well, uh, the, the idea that uh, the principles, the scientific principles that uh, they're being touted with such confidence are in fact the emperor's, the emperor's new clothes, uh, are in fact completely flawed is certainly one that I, I subscribe to personally. Um, if you look at um, if you if you look at if you look at the biblical history, you've got a reduction in lifespan as as time goes on. If you look at genetic entropy and what actually happens to to um, uh, genetic information over generations, you're seeing not a, an advancement but actually a decline, uh, an accumul an accumulation of errors. So all the pomposity and overconfidence. Uh, of this movement, um, I believe will be shown to be empty. But I, I take your point. The, the, they're trying to create a hell on earth. And even if it's completely impractical, the harm that will be done as they try and force this through uh, can and will probably be enormous with getting a glimpse of this um, in the sad sight of, of children being persuaded that they're born into the wrong body 
and undergoing at a very young age life-altering surgery to mutilate themselves only to have to regret and try to recover from this a few years later. It's a pitiful sight and um, I wonder if we're going to find new horrors along those lines in years to come. And just uh, while you're on that point, I think it's really important to think about this historically. Uh, two of the most revolutionary techno cultures to arise from the, the late uh, 19th and, and the whole the early 20th, 20th century, fascism and communism, both uh, very much centered on technology and what to do with it, uh, be it to engineer the genome in the case of the fascists or to engineer the society in, ca in the case of the communists. And the fascists wanted to create, particularly the Nazis, wanted to create a master race by way of eugenics, and the, cult the communists wanted to create a new socialist man by way of re-education and revolution. So uh, both of those failed. Uh, the new man never appeared. Uh, the master race was never perfected. But uh, I don't think anyone would deny the power and the horror of those two movements. I think what we see now is the rise of something much more hybridized, much more difficult to pigeonhole. Um, it's neither communist nor fascist. It's neither corporate uh, nor communalist. It's neither um, meritocratic or uh, nor egalitarian. And, and really, even the transhumanist element is just one of many threads woven into it. We're entering a hybrid era uh, but the hybrid era undoubtedly will be, in many ways, insofar as worldly power is concerned, determined by technology. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think that your your instinct that uh, the greatest horrors are to come, I think that is unfortunately uh, probably correct. So I'll I'll leave you um, with one little moment of optimism um, in the last. Uh, calendar year in the UK, much to the surprise of everyone, and particularly the Bank of England, uh, the use of good old-fashioned cash increased by 7%. Um, no one saw this coming, and it suggests that people were voting um, with, their, with their action, with their human action, to do things differently. Um, to do things in a way which might be less convenient. And they're obviously doing this for a reason. And uh, one of the things that we'll have on our side is there will always be a remnant of right thinking and well-doing out there. And that remnant will never go away and will always be there to build things up when everything turns to complete chaos. And chaos is what you were describing. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you in two halves or one half. It doesn't or one one section. It doesn't matter. Um, the the um, depth of knowledge you have of this subject and and the uh, your ability to to look over this highly complex field and pick out the themes that need to be understood is is a real pleasure to uh, to to hear. And I want to thank you very much for your time today. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk some, some other time in the future. But until then, uh, Joe Allen, thank you very much.